family business. Being in business is exactly the same as being in a fight. You always win, and you don't go big until you've won. I never knew what I would do or how I would transform things. I never had in my mind that I would end up promoting boxing. When you talk about commitment, it's not just a word, it actually means something. The worst thing you can do to me is tell me it can't be done. I don't want people to say yes, Larry. I want people to create. Barry Eddy, really good to see you. We don't often see you interview together, do we? We hear a lot from you both individually, some more than others. Because you only really need one of us, that's why, because we both say we the same thing. We only have time for one of you, <laughs> that's, that's the thing. But we've got um, two for the price of one today, it's double trouble, isn't it? Mm. Um, we're here in Barry's office, in your office. Temporarily, which is soon to become Eddie's office. So, you know, it's a transitional period for, for us and the company. So in a few Exciting. months' time, it'll all be ripped out, different colour. Everything will yeah, be different. Definitely a different colour. We're going to lose that picture up there as well. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Slightly old school. We're not, not going to lose it. It's just going to be positioned in my office and my house. <laughs> so I can just keep a little tomb there of uh, past achievements and memories. It's been quite the journey, isn't it, for Matchroom? 38 years. Yeah. Um, Barry, for you, it started out, uh, you're an accountant. Yeah. So, so where did it all begin? How did the journey I start? I mean, obviously I was super smart, you know, but I saw opportunity every now and again, took the most of it, got some lucky breaks, ended up running a snooker hall company, um, met Steve Davis. And it, just these things are almost fated, you know, and it just rolls forward and you don't really have a plan. You just roll the dice and things happen. And if, if God smiles on you, BBC went flat out with snooker. Snooker became huge. I was already there, made me successful. 1982 was the time to sell the snooker clubs. And I thought I was going to retire. I was 34, made some money. Uh, I got bored. So I started doing events around the world and working with Steve and some of the snooker boys. And everything clicked in from there. You know, passions I'd had in my life. I've always loved boxing, uh, so I thought, why not, why not be a boxing promoter? I didn't know what I was doing, so I just rolled the dice and most of, the, most of it worked out, you know. Did you ever imagine where you are today that it would be the beast, the, the animal that it is? No. I've always been fairly fatalistic in my approach that things are meant to be. You know, I think things are out of our control. This is a much deeper conversation, but you know, things just happen and I don't think we can really affect it so much. So I just concentrated throughout on being the best I could be. You know, and sometimes it wasn't good enough, most times it was. There were certain key points that made us, and you know, BBC support of snooker in the early 70s was very important. The launch of Sky, and the, the, the fact that we could suddenly get um, sports live on TV that we never dreamed about before. I mean, today's viewers have no understanding of what sport was like in the 70s. There was no sport, there was virtually nothing. So people like me come along with, with a flair and an appetite and a passion for niche sports. You know, the darts and the snooker and the bowling and the fish. There was nowhere to go until Sky came along. And you know, I think we've done well for Sky and they've done well for us, but they certainly made our company by giving us a platform to live our dreams and to create opportunities for sportsmen and women. You just said that about the niche sports. I'll ask you this, Eddie, because that is something that Matchroom has always had a talent at, at doing, is sort of 
taking those niche sports, the ones that maybe are seen as less glamorous, sort of less attractive to people and, and transforming them, repackaging them and, and really making them into something. What is the secret for that? I think it's probably about ownership of the sports itself. You know, it's, um, I think when you go into a major sport with major organisations, with governing bodies, with multiple broadcasters, there's always a lot of mess to unfold. And it's very difficult to put your blueprint on a sport that's already in place. And I think what we've been able to do and what the old man has done well is to create their own vision around the sport. So with darts, yeah, it existed. It was mainly a pub game and you know, every now and again they'd have an event at the Circus Tavern. But you could go in and rip up the script from snooker from a standing start, he did that. And then when he went back, he did it again. Boxing, we've been able to do it little bit different because there's so much history in boxing and, and the televised side has been around for a long time but fishing, you know, bowling, uh, table tennis, you know, all these other sports and I think sometimes it's the enjoyment you get from the talent and the, you know, that feeling of, of embrace from the talent to say thank you for what you're doing for the sport and you thrive off that you get so much more out of the players and the participants because they feel like they've been given an opportunity to go out and perform and they're thankful for that and that's nice you know sometimes when you're dealing in a sport that people are taking you for granted or the hard work that you're putting in or the opportunities you're providing them with but sometimes and, and a lot of the time in boxing as well but definitely in those sports it's a case of people particularly in darts where these guys you know they're earning a lot of money they're working very hard but there also, there is a feeling of, I guess, gratitude that you've turned this game into the monster that it is and we're getting opportunities that we never expected. I think it's, it's really much about perception in the eyes of most sports fans. If you don't go in at the top end, if you don't make enough noise, you'll be perceived to be just a, oh, a little interest, you know, a pastime. It's a pastime, it's not a sport, you know, and the snobs of sport come in, you know. Just because dart players don't run as fast as Usain Bolt, it doesn't mean that darts is not a sport. But it's about respect. And also, with your numbers head on, it's about the volume. So millions of people go fishing. Millions of people play darts. And yet, until we came along, it really wasn't of interest to broadcasters. It wasn't looked upon as a, a valuable broadcast property. And that, we changed the perception and obviously changed people's lives along the way. A lot of sports come to us now and say, take us over, please take us over. And some of them are yesterday's sports and they're not, you know, that's when the, the analysis comes in, where you say, this is a lost cause. Uh, and we've had some of those, you know, we, we've done events. We usually do events for three years before we say, this is not gonna work. And in that three years, we learn a lot about the sports itself, and the people involved, but mostly we learn about sustainability. We learn about commercial values. Is there a commercial value in this sport? The guy that invented UFC, the guy that invented WWE, they are the models that we follow more. Your first one is boxing in 87. It was Bruno yeah. Bugnam, wasn't yeah. it, at White Hart Lane? <laughs> what, what was it though, what, what attracted you to boxing? Well, I was a fight fan, you know, I just, I mean, I tried boxing myself and I was really terrible at it, really bad. Um, but I was a fan, so I used to go to all the shows. I would go to the ABAs, you know, in Royal Albert Hall all, after, all afternoon and then all evening. I had friends at boxers. So naturally, you know, you, you, you go and watch. 
and actually the standard of entertainment was poor. So in those days, I was a frustrated fight fan that actually, because I thought, I've got time, why don't I become a boxing promoter? I didn't really know what it entailed, but I had a vision of just putting on fights that I wanted to see as a fan. And Bruno Bugner was top of that list because everybody hated Joe Bugner because he beat Henry Cooper, who's our hero. Everybody loved Frank Bruno because he was the nation's sweetheart. But in the same way as, as you, you have this talent identifying the sports and transforming them, same with characters. I mean, you, you signed some amazing characters over the years. How do you spot the characters? How do you know they're going to be something special? I, I'm sure you feel the same. I know Eddie does. There, there are certain people that walk into a room and it's like someone turned the light on. You know, they just got this. Like who? who, who? Well, Eubank, for example. The first time I saw Eubank, he had no money, he had no real career, he had a swagger, but he had something. He had that magic of like, there's a story in there to be told. There's, of course, you've got to be able to perform as well. It goes without saying. See, lots of great sportsmen and women don't have their personality magnified and they never achieve the financial success, certainly, that, that perhaps their skills deserve. Uh, that's the fault of, of promotion or absence of promotion. Others will gain far more financial return because of their personality. Well, the, the trick is to try and put the two together and have someone who can perform, like a Eubank, who has got a personality, that you can work on, that you can promote and sell to the public. Who is the trickiest one to deal with? They're all tricky. They're all tricky. I mean, Eubank was probably one of the trickiest as well. But you know, they were different. You know, from Nigel Ben would come into the office one day, he would be in tears, and the next day he would want to take your head off. You know, uh, Lennox Lewis was very difficult because Lennox was so focused on his own career and what he wanted to disregard anything. I think Eubank was, you know, I'm an athlete and I know my worth. You know, one of the great performers. But personalities come through sport and the bigger the personality, the bigger the sport, and the bigger the business. And so you have to find them and then develop them. You don't change them. You just take part of their personality, concentrate on that, and then expand it. But you don't put something in that's false because it wouldn't be capable of being sustainable over a period. What are your memories around that time? Um, the first one I remember was being at Cliffs Pavilion in South End. And, you know, at the time I was probably eight years old, nine years old, something like that. And, uh, you know, Cliffs Pavilion in Southend was a very interesting place, looking back. I remember sitting in Mickey Duff's chair once, he came up, I think he had a broken leg, and he came up to me and he said, get out of my seat. And I, said, I told him where to go. You know, I thought, well, Dad come over and went, oh, don't do that, that's Mickey Duff. You know, but I was like, who's Mickey Duff? You know, and that was, I was a cocky young kid who all of a sudden, you know, had a, had a dad that was working in snooker and, you know, I would see him on BBC. What, you know, what age were, were you aware of what your dad did? Because it's not the normal job, is it? No, I, I guess that came a little bit later. I mean, you know, it wasn't around the, the years of Bruno Bugner and, and those kind of years. It was only really when I started to um, probably go week in, week out and hang around with the fighters a little bit as well, you know, and go to the gym and watch and just be around, and it's not, for me, it wasn't really, you know, I spent a lot of time following him around with Eubank, I'd go down to his house in Brighton, he'd give me a few leather jackets that he had hanging around when I was sort of 13, 14. Um, I'd go out, you know, when 
Johnny Nelson box, Carlos de Leon. I think that was the first time I met Naz. And we just follow him around in the back of the hall. And he was, you know, he walked around with incredible swag. A, a, a similar age to me, really. You know, a few years older, but walked around like he owned the place. And he was 15 or 14. And, you know, travelling around, eventually watching him fight uh, Barrera and, you know, going out to Germany and watching Johnny Nelson beat Marcus Bart and going to South Africa to watch Eubank fight. You know, I was travelling around everywhere. I remember going to Hong Kong to watch Herbie Hyde fight Tommy Morrison and the fight fell through at the weigh-in and everyone was arguing and fighting. And I was in there, I was amongst it. You know, there was nearly a riot when Johnny Nelson knocked out Marcus Bott. And, you know, I, back then you're fearless. You don't really know what's going on. You're just immersed in this crazy world, so. That was a great night with Marcus Bott because Johnny was behind, you know, Johnny was never the most attractive knockout puncher, you know, his style didn't fit. But in the 12th round, he had nothing else to do. And he went out and he knocked Marcus Bott out and the place went crazy. Eddie was, I don't know, 11 or 12. Obnoxious, really. He was straight no. around the ring, <laughs> no. absolutely living off. The Germans were so disappointed. And Eddie turned around, I think you said your words to me, he said, Dad, what a great night. He said, I've had a couple of beers. Johnny's won in the 12th round. We just How need, old were you? He said, we just, need to, <laughs> we just need to have a fight with somebody. Yeah. It was I, like, think, I think the drinking age in Germany is a bit lower, actually, yeah. to be fair. But yeah, I think it was, you probably uh, that, had a surreptitious slurp <laughs> somewhere. But. That, that was, um, yeah, that was the life that I grew up around, really. And I would go to the gym in Romford. Um, and, and we, you know, Freddie King, who was training the fighters at the time, my godfather, would drive around here at night and they would have their meeting about boxing and I would just sit in the, the study out there and you know after school I would go to the Romford gym and just sit there you know I would, but everything you're saying that's that's so different to well pretty much most people's upbringings right but yeah, it was cool. always a plan I mean it wasn't by mistake or you know we were a family business. You know, and that was always a plan, was it, to, to keep it as a family business? In 1982, business? when Matchroom was formed, the shareholding was allocated, 60% me, 20% Eddie, 20% Katie. Eddie was three or four, Katie was six. The shareholding is exactly the same today. It hasn't changed. Which I think should be discussed as well, actually. <laughs> <laughs> is that part of the office change yeah, as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, A lot of the time, you're not a very nice person. I don't think you, you can be a great husband, and sometimes I think you can be a bad father. You know, your heart could be in the right place, but you have to be single-minded and you, there's nothing that can get in the way. What was Barry like as a dad? Um, he, he was good looking back. I mean, it's only when you become a father that you learn about the responsibilities and, um, you know, the requirements. And, you know, it's, it's hard work, especially when you're so driven. You know, I know what I'm like and I, I imagine he was exactly the same at my age where you know, quite frankly, I think to be successful and, and to have that relentless approach, a lot of the time you're not a very nice person. I don't think you, you can be a great husband and sometimes I think you can be a bad father. You know, your heart could be in the right place, but you have to be single-minded and you, there's nothing that can get in the way. Even your kids, even your home life, because you're that driven. And, and I think sometimes I've, I look back now, especially after the lockdown and, and being at home a lot more and thinking that there's been a lot of times where maybe I've made decisions that I shouldn't have because of the disregard for everything else in my life other than the focus of achievement. And I think 
really, I think I share the same qualities in that respect of he would come home, you know, I would sit out there on the landing and wait for him to pull in off the bend there, you know, and as soon as he got in, it was, let's go out there and play cricket. You know, and, and he would never say, no, I'm not, you know, he would always go out there. And at the time, you take that for granted. But now, having experienced the same thing, you know, when I get home from travelling to America or whatever, you know, and you're absolutely shattered. Dad, can we go to the park? park? Yeah, of course we can. Put the tracksuit on, off you go. You know, you're falling asleep, pushing on the swings, or you're, you're just sending a little WhatsApp down on the, on the side. But it, it's what you do. Because ultimately, you know, we know that family is very important, but this is family as well. You know, the, the company and the business falls into that same bracket. So sometimes, although you're being a bit selfish in that respect, it's justified because it's what we do. And that, that is our family. So um, growing up, he would be, I think boxing, I saw another side to him because that's when I saw him definitely at his most stressed, definitely with his worst temper. Why was that thing? It's aggravation. Because everyone's trying to screw you. You can never really, very, very few are loyal, you know, and there's heartache, heartbreak, ups and downs, you know, from winning and losing on the night to a fight falling through. I mean, you've seen it being around us, Anna, you know, we talk about AJ and Jarrell Miller and, you know, the, the replacements and fight week and, you know, the drama. And it's, it's, it is unquestionably the worst business to be in, but also the greatest business in terms of the highs and the excitement. Being promoters, I guess, you're kind of, I guess, in the same category as someone like a football referee. You're damned if you do, damned if you don't, right? And you get a lot of criticism, but you are only human. So how, how do you deal with that and the well, pressure? I think that the, you know, the benefits we have in modern day boxing as a promoter is the ability to interact with fans at any moment in the palm of their hand. And they didn't have that. So for me, I build a big social media following and I have the ability to let you know about any show or any fight or any night or any fighter that I have in a heartbeat to millions of people around the world. That takes time and not everyone can build that following. But back then it was giving out leaflets at the local train station or plastering Sticking posters, posters under the, the train, you know, the underground <laughs> station. So in that respect, I think we're very, very lucky. Where I'm more jealous of that generation is once you finish the show, as long as you thought the show was all right, you go out for a curry and a few beers and you go home and you sleep well that night. In today's world, those same million people that I'm reaching out to to promote the fight will have their opinions. And you only build that kind of following if you're willing to interact. And by interacting, I'm not just talking about posting, I'm talking about listening, learning, watching. So you see the responses. And when you put your heart and soul into everything and you put your time into everything and you ride the ups and downs to deliver the show and you get criticism, it, it does hurt initially. And then you learn that you can't please everybody. You can only ever do your best. You're 100% committed, but there's nothing like great feedback. You know, I think in the early days, I probably struggled with that a little bit just to come to terms with the criticism when you're putting so much into it. And I see myself as a fight fan. You know, I think people probably know that, but they probably don't know how deep I've been in this sport over the years. You know, I've been watching boxing live for 33 years. You know, I've been in changing rooms when fighters have been 
unconscious and carried to hospital. I've been there when they've achieved their dreams and won a world title or they've you've lost their world title and the, the world's come crumbling down. You live and breathe the victories and you take the losses on the chin. You know? And just like everything in life, the more you're around a different situation, the better you deal with it. You know, the first press conference I ever gave with Audley Harrison and David Hay, I couldn't stop my legs from shaking. You know, now I could talk to you for no, 24 no, hours no, can't show about you. any fight or <laughs> any fighter, you know. But I was sit sitting there and I put my hands on the table and I, was, I went to speak and I could feel them going. So I put them underneath my, my legs. And, I was, and then I just went for it. You know, you might not have noticed it at the time, but I did. And it's only when you put yourself in different situations. That's why, you know, when, we, when, when you suffer a, a massive defeat or, you know, a situation that you've never dealt with before, in the old days, I would turn to him and say, Dad, bloody hell, you know. Oh, I mean, even up to when AJ lost to Ruiz, you know, the first person I turned to was him to say, oh, you know, and he, he just went, it's boxing, off you go. And then you go, all right, bang, you know, you're in it, you deal with everything, you deal with AJ, deal with the media, you deal with the contract and on you go. But in the early days, I was all over the place. I mean, I didn't Do know what I was doing. Do you remember that first press conference of how nervous Eddie yeah, was? Yeah, I mean, it's no surprise really, because I think we've all been through it, you know. Boxing is a unique sport, uh, and it depends on the amount of passion that you've got involved. I mean, the reason why Matchroom's probably been successful is I, I do think we probably care a bit more than most, and I think our reputation is better than, than most operators. But mostly, we have, we, we have real passion. It's not invented. You know, it's a good business. It makes money uh, sometimes. Sometimes it doesn't. But the thing is, you never have a... You never have a dull night. There are always questions you're asking yourself and you can always improve, you know. For me, I, I fell out of love with boxing after about 10 years because it was a terrible business. You know, there wasn't the quality, there wasn't the broadcast, there wasn't the opportunity to spread. And when that opportunity did come back, of course, Eddie's taken it to another level, a level that we've not seen before. But you need to have partnerships, you need to have the right fighters, the right broadcasters, the right sponsors, and you need to have the support of the fans. And that's not easy to get all those four components in one bundle. Eddie's entry into boxing we'll come on to in just a sec. I've asked you what Barry was like as a dad. What was Eddie like as a child? Was he academic? Was he sporty? <laughs> Did he like school? No, no he was... Uh, <gasps> I'm guessing from that. I huh? mean, he went... <laughs> he, he, listen, he, he was my son, so obviously I love everything he did, but he was quite good at sport. I mean, particularly cricket, which was I always thought it was his best sport. Uh, he was had plenty of mouth, plenty of lip. He had a lot of his father's bad characteristics, frankly, too much to say, too loudly. Um, big lump. Uh, I think nice kid, but no academic at all, you know, and no discipline of work. And probably, I think, I was mindful in those days how difficult it probably was for him to be going to a public school, the son of someone who was quite well known, and it puts a different type of pressure on the kid to either outperform your dad or at least get away with the fact that everyone thinks you've, you're spoilt rotten. That's the thing, because you have come under some criticism that you were born with a, a, bit, a bit of a silver yeah, spoon in yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Which, you know, do you see it as... Uh, Massive silver spoon. Massive. I mean, the silver <laughs> spoon was that big. <laughs> do, you, do you see it as a blessing or, or a curse? Or No, listen, I'm very lucky. You know, some people don't get born with those kind of opportunities. I think, you know, when, when I, I reflect on it now, I think a lot of my drive and determination comes from trying to 
um, trying to create your own legacy. You know, at school, he's quite right. And listen, I lapped it up at the time, but I was only ever Barry Hearn's son. You know, I did my podcast with Frank Lampard the other day and he was in the year above me and he was Frank Lampard's son, you know? And he was always, oh, you only got into West Ham because of your dad. And at school it was like, well, you, you know, you don't need to work anyway, do you? What do you need to qualify? Like, you're only gonna go and work for your dad. So I guess that was, that was there as well. Um, I think the difference with our family is, and this is where, you know, I've got to be more careful with, with our kids, but our working class mentality remains the same. He's out of Dagnum, right? So the apple never fall, falls far from the tree in that respect. It's not like we are some sort of eighth generation, Sloney, you know, uh, rather, you know, oh, hello, oh, no, oh boy, hello, son, you know. We talk about silver spoons. Yeah, silver spoon. But I still had to clean his shoes, you know, most nights. I still had to do this. I still, he still went to the gym. He still took me down to the, the local boxing club with a load of kids that were from a different background to mix me in there. You know, I would still be working all summer. You know, he would take me to the gym, we'd spar together. It was very different, you know, and it was, it was never like, yeah, I was definitely a Silver Spoon kid because I grew up with a wealthy father who'd done very well for himself. I grew up here, you know, but the, it's hard to explain. There's a real working class mentality that is probably the thing that I'm most proud of is that I could have gone completely the other way. Like, I think he was petrified of me being a spoiled rich kid, really, because that was probably the kid that he hated growing up. But in life, you have to play the hand you're dealt. You know, and I was dealt two aces. But that can soon become a bad hand if you play it wrong. So really, you have to take what you're given. And the only way that my success can be measured is to take this business and, and a sport like boxing to levels that we've never seen before, levels that he couldn't take it to. Because if I would just come into boxing, take over the Sky contract, keep bubbling along, what achievement's that? You know, when you talk about your Barry Hearn son, your silver spoon, you know, we always joke that everywhere I went, I was Barry Hearn's son. Now he's Eddie Hearn's dad. Everyone goes up to him and says, you're Eddie Hearn's dad, aren't you? It's hilarious, we laugh about it all the time. Eddie has his own brand. I mean, when it comes down to real basics in business, he has his own brand. Uh, but his brand is part of the company's brand. I mean, we are an unusual family because we are so basic. We are not, you know, we're not lovers. We're not someone who's gets the, the amount of money we've made go to our head. Our feet are firmly planted on the ground. As a person, most working class people are looking for disasters to take away the advantage they may have earned. And I think we're no different to that. You know, the fact that Eddie has had a, a good education, hopefully, and has, looked, has been brought up in decent surroundings, it really doesn't matter. It matters what's in your heart and soul. And we are more street than office. Part and parcel of this not taking life too seriously, Anna, is it's a game. I know I'm getting old now, so I can talk with, the, with opinion on the fact that you do have a different perspective of life as you get older. Money, yeah, what, so what? Life, life or death, much more important. Family life, happiness, health, all the things in the world we live in, so much more important than just money. So how do you concentrate on money? Because you do need to, to make sure your business is sustainable and make sure that everyone stays happy. You make it a game. So being in business is exactly the same as being in a fight. You want to win every round. You'd like to knock out your opposition. You probably won't because they're quite good. 
So you may have to just settle for a points win, but you always win. And you don't go to bed until you've won. You know, he got 54,000 at Old Trafford for Ben Eubank too. Well, I'd done 80,000 for Froch. And when I did it, I said, you know, how's your 54,000 at Old Trafford? It's lovely, isn't it? You know. I knew he was going to be okay from, by the time he was 10, because it's in his DNA. He had no choice. He was a project. I was creating the person to take over from me by the time he was 10. And I didn't need to say anything to anybody. And actually, now it doesn't matter how long I'm on this earth for, because every time he opens his mouth, I can hear myself talking. But he's taking it to another level by adding his own piece, which is what you, everybody wants their children to do well. Every father would like their son or their daughter to be better than them. That's natural about parenting. I'm no different. But the difference is with him. There was a plan. There always been a legacy for anyone who comes out of a fairly poor background. Their first job is to look after themselves and their family. And then they provide for future generations. So my job is done. And the education that's gone in at an early stage has been mixed with their own, both my son and my daughters, both their own personal successes. So it couldn't be better, but it was a very much a plan. You know, he had to go away and do his own thing first because he had to prove something to himself, not to me. He was my son. If he'd have had no ability, I would, he would have still been my son. I would have still helped him as much as I could. It's just turned out rather well that he's also a better operator than his dad. How do you feel about that? Yeah, I mean, to be called a project, you know, it's interesting. Feel like, feels like it's a bit like the Truman Show, really. <laughs> uh, no, but he's right, you know, and I think the stuff early on, going out, you know, going through the local paper, getting a job in telesales and, you know, finishing college and going out and working in the industry, writing off to these businesses myself, going to the interviews. Now, that was the time where I wasn't really dropping the fact that I was Barry Hearn's son. Because sometimes in that environment, it's more of a hindrance to what, what are you doing here? You know, so that was stuff that I had to, I felt like I had to go and achieve myself. I never wanted to join the business straight out of college because that's what everyone says I would do. And I wanted to get the experience. I never knew what I would do or how I would transform things. And I certainly didn't think when I left college, I want to be a boxing promoter. Now, from the age of eight or nine to 14 or 15, there wasn't a fighter in the country whose record I didn't know. I was obsessed with reading, research, British boxing yearbooks, you know, just going through fighters. I knew everything. And then I found cricket, I found going out, you know, and, and I, I sort of moved away from boxing. But even when I was walking around at these events, carrying out belts and screaming and shouting. I never said, I want to do this. I want, I probably at that stage thought I could be a fighter rather than a promoter. And I never thought I would go on to be a promoter. And even when I started, you know, work after college, I never had in my mind that I would end up promoting boxing, you know, and I just felt that, you know, I would work in sport because we're failed athletes, really. And I think many for sports fans, that's what we all are. If we had the choice, we'd be doing it, wouldn't we? But we couldn't do it because we weren't good enough. So the next best thing is to work in sport 
and try and get, you know, he always says, if you can get 1%, I totally agree with you on that. If you can get 1% of the adrenaline, you know, that a, that a fighter can get when they walk to the ring, then you're lucky. I feel like I get 40 or 50% a lot of the time. But we're, we're all, anyone that's, that loves sport, anyone that loves to play sport, anyone that had dreams to go on and, you know, win the Ashes or go out and fight at Madison Square Garden and couldn't achieve that, to be, to work within it and to take a small piece of that is, is the next best thing. The experiences that I've had with fighters, the ones that you're closest to are always the ones you have the greatest experiences with, but they're also the ones that you would take a bullet for or you would go the extra yard for. You know, and there's been four or five of them in my career where I would do anything for, you know, and still their careers have ended now, some of them, and remain some of my closest friends. You know, and that, that's when you get the great nights, the great nights, and you see it. You know, we're never ones to hide our emotion, and we might make plonkers of ourselves sometimes when we're jumping over ropes and celebrating. That's not money. That's passion. That's enjoyment. That's fulfillment. That's being part of someone realising their dream. That's pure passion, dancing on a boat. No, that's just sad. That's just sad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Is it as much about managing egos, though, in, in your job? Dealing with fighters yeah, in that respect? Fighters, yeah, yeah, I think so. I think honesty goes a long way, and that's something that has always been drummed into me. You know, you, you're always better off being honest because you haven't got to worry about what you said. You know, and it's, it's, I think as you get older, you start to become more and more honest. I mean, he's brutally honest, and I'm sure back in the day he used to tell a few pork pies, but... Actually, we live in a world now, especially coming off the back of the pandemic, that's been really fascinating and interesting developing fighters' careers in this environment that we're in now. And honesty is, is by far the best tool to sit down with a fighter and say, look, this is the situation we're in right now. This is what I think you should do. You may not like it. We don't like that's it. That's the thing. Some of the conversations must be really, they really are, tough. But, but we're seeing, for the first time, actually, we're seeing people believe in problems that exist because they see it with their own eyes. They know where we're at in the world right now, but we're committed to continuing the path of their career, to making sure they get paid, to putting a plan together, to keep expanding worldwide, even in this environment. So once a fighter has that trust in you, you know, people like Tony Bellew, you get in a relationship with them, and even AJ to a certain extent as well, where you will sit down with them and say, right, this is where we're at at the moment, blah, blah, blah. And they will say to you, whatever you think is the best option for me, I'm in. And, and that kind of responsibility, you know, I can't explain that. Like that, that motivates you so much to deliver when someone puts that trust in you. And people like Tony, the amount of times towards the back end of the career where Tony would say to me, oh, but look, look, you know, you know what you're doing, I trust you. You know, and AJ the same, and actually when you think of the size of AJ, we say a lot, probably not, not our easiest client, but the one that has the most vision and most trust in us and what we're doing, he'll always speak to Rob McCracken or he'll speak to Freddie or 258, but we're all, we all share the same vision. And when someone the size of Anthony Joshua says, you're the man and you know what we're doing. AJ, we've got a situation with the belts. Oh, what? You handle it. 
you've both have had probably a couple of the best seats in the house when it comes to watching sporting events. I mean, many, many people jealous of, of where you get to see and what you get to see. Um, what have been the standout moments for you, the highs and also the lows? Well, the biggest low without doubt would be Michael Watson getting injured against Chris Eubank uh, in their fight at White Hart Lane. I think that's an evening that brings it home to you, the risks the fighters are taking, the responsibilities, and we all take a share of the blame for that night because everyone who was involved should do. And I think that uh, that lives with you, you know? Um, I've had other fighters injured and I, that I look back on the Danny Gaults and people like that. You know, some have done better than others. You know, Spencer Oliver was one of those near tragedies, but fortunately because of the education that was learned in the bad days has come to the rescue of fighters today's world. So they're the bad nights. Um, the bad nights and the good nights, it's interesting. It's, again, we seem to repeat ourselves, it's never about money. You know, you don't think about profits and losses on the night. You look back, you're reflective on financials. But the good nights are about the adrenaline buzz where you have a smile on your face, you can't take it off, you don't know why, you feel warm, you feel at peace with everybody, and you float rather than walk. <laughs> so for me, 1981, Steve Davis winning the World Snooker Championship was a night that changed my life and I'll never forget it. I think 1990, the best fight I've ever seen, Eubank and Ben, first fight at the NEC, was a fight that changed my life in words of boxing and created a a legacy moment with Eubank, which, although he can be a bit nutty, is still brilliant memories and he was a great, great man. So I can now take more pleasure in watching a kid win Fishermania. In the early days, the success, you know, the highs were, you know, watching Francis Ampofo win the British, title, British flyweight title or watching Paul Silky Jones beat Damien Denny at Kings Hall in Belfast or Johnny Nelson beat Marcus Bott. You know, they, they, those guys were like my heroes growing up. Jim McDonnell, you know, looked like he might come close to beating Azuma Nelson at the Royal Albert Hall and getting knocked out in the last round. Like, amazing memories. In my professional career in boxing, those memories started very early with particularly Carl Froch beating um, Lucien Boutet at Nottingham. And, and still maybe tough to top, but then the bigger you get, the more of those nights you have. When Darren Barker beat Daniel Gill, you know, these are all nights where he's been there as well. You know, we've got in the ring together after the Daniel Gill fight, and it's me, him, Tony Sims, Darren Barker, and it's like, it, you know, his dad, his brother. Um, and then, one long after that, that, Kel Brook went and beat Sean Porter in LA. Same thing, you're in the ring there for that. Tony Bellew winning the world title at, at Goodison Park stands out. I know you talk about that a lot. And that was, there wasn't a dry eye in the house. You know, it was his son was there and Bill Kemwright was there who'd been ill. And, you know, we put that event together really on three weeks notice on a Sunday night at Goodison Park. Anthony Crawler, you know, coming back after he suffered a fractured skull and a broken ankle and got robbed in the first Perez fight to beat him second time around. You sort of go from there into other huge nights, of course, going into AJ against Klitschko. I mean, that was probably a night, the other nights are so much clearer in memory than that particular night because the events 
got to a size where, you know, I say it got too big, but it, there is so much aggravation and so many problems on the night that no one ever sees. that's been the most stressful event you've done? Yeah, but uh, it's, I look back now and I, I look at the photos that are around this office somewhere and, and the halls with 90,000 people and the fireworks going up and big AJ in flames and I think, I don't even remember that. It's only when people come up to you after and say, that was the greatest sporting event I've ever been to. And I go, was it really? You know, it's like, I don't even remember that. And, you know, those successes keep going, keep going. And Katie Taylor's been a big part of my enjoyment in boxing. Katie Taylor come along at the perfect time when broadcasters started to realise that we needed to give women better opportunity in sport. And the timing, which is everything, was perfect. And when she sat down there and looked me in the eye and told me what the sport meant to her, I was like, literally, within 10 seconds, I was in. And my vision from there was, I am gonna, you are, we are gonna become undisputed and you are gonna change the face of women's boxing with me. We started out, oh, women's boxing, oh, you know, you read the code of the, that sport in women's boxing. It doesn't even exist anymore. It's not even women's boxing. It's not men's boxing. And she's such a remarkable individual. And when I look back at her career so far, we talk about the whirlwind of AJ at, at Wembley. You know, you go back to, she's boxed at Wembley Stadium, the Millennium Stadium, Madison Square Garden, the TD Arena in Boston, Philadelphia. She's, she's boxed in front of a full Madison Square Garden for AJ. She's boxed here at Fight Camp. She, it's unbelievable what she is achieving. She is so motivating. Talk about motivating me. She's the kind of person that motivates me. AJ, when I'm around AJ, the energy that he gives me and the motivation that he gives me, that's being around those kind of people with that kind of passion lifts you. Family's always been massively important. Mm. And as you said earlier, it's family first, business second. And you're a man of tradition, a family tradition. You have your Sunday lunches, don't you? Mm. Yeah. Every, every Sunday. Are they Sunday lunches that are just about family? No business spills over, no arguments no, spill over, or, <laughs> or are some of them more yeah. tense we're than others? We're not allowed to talk about side of the mouth conversation. <laughs> really? I, I, I will sit, dad, well actually, funnily enough, my dad would always sit at the head of the table. Of course. My daughter, my 10-year-old daughter, taken over my never sits at the head of the table. And, but most of the time when he was there, it was me sitting here and him there, and I would go to him, uh, what were the ratings last night on the darts, you know? And you just hear my mum, stop it, stop it. No business discussions at <laughs> this table. One more right. word yeah. and the dinner is in yeah. the dog. Okay, okay, all right. You know, I made that fight, you know. You know it's, like, it's, just, it's impossible because it is, you know, and actually our wives have to deal with the fact that that is the topic of conversation. You know, we're not interested in talking about the soaps. We're not even really interested in talking about things that we're not involved with. You know, we're not interested in talking about who's winning the Premier League. We, that's not our business. We're talking, we're interested in what we're involved I think, in. I, I, I think that's what you... people don't really understand is when people talk about commitment, they talk about sacrifices. I mean, yeah, there's always sacrifices to make, but are they really sacrifices if you're achieving your objectives? But when you talk about commitment, it's not just a word. It actually means something. And if you commit, and you commit properly, then you have every chance. And too many people talk about it without actually really committing. They go through the motions. Well, we commit. We commit 100%. And also, I imagine, 
knowing, knowing you quite well and a bit, that you're very competitive. Are you competitive against each other? Well, when the competition's in, all bets are off. It's win by any means necessary. I mean, you should see the darts games or the table tennis games. Even now, you know, we'll go over to play. He's got a table tennis table and a darts board in his office. And we're like diving all over the floor, you know, down here after Sunday lunch. What's the score for No, it's not. It's not. And people look at us like, you, you are crazy. But that's, you know, without that kind of competitive instinct. And that's why I'm driven to outperform him. You know, when I started the poker and I said, oh, I need to make poker the most successful division at match, pff, no chance. You know, we got there. You know, with boxing, it's the same thing. Now it's, it's, it's moved beyond that. We're on another level now. But it was always, I'm going to be better than you. And I'll prove that I'm better than you. You know, he got 54,000 at Old Trafford for Ben Eubank too. Well, I'd done 80,000 for Froch. And when I did it, I said, you know, as your 54,000 at Old Trafford. It's lovely, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> but you can't buy that. I mean, I wouldn't want it any other way. Would you? Would you really want? I think most people watching this would associate their children's success in a positive way for them, not Absolutely. a negative way, you know? So it doesn't mean to say that I don't want to beat him up every time. I mean, we, we play golf together, you know. I want to win everything. I want to win every conversation. I'm not going to, but I'm not going to stop trying. And that's why we are so, you know, I mean, we're, it sounds really weird, but we're really good mates as well. I mean, we're not, you know, it's father and son, but it's not really father and son. It's Bazza and Eddie. We started off this interview by Barry saying that Eddie's going to be redecorating this office. Mm. He's redecorating my life well, um, and my th company. This, this brings me on nicely to, you know, you are sat here today. You've mm. got a big smile on your face, mm. had an incredible career, and I know mm. you're still heavily involved. But have you reached the point where you're ready to hand over the keys and... Yeah, well, yeah, I've been, it's always inevitable. I am taking a completely different attitude within months, not, not years, because I don't need to be doing what I've been doing. I don't need to be involved in operational things anymore because I've got better operators than me. And the most important thing in life, in anyone's life, is to look in the mirror and tell yourself the truth. I look in the mirror, I know how good I am. I'm brilliant at some things. I'm not so brilliant at others. I find people better than me. God bless. Go, go and do it. But there are things where I can still make a contribution. But it'll be different contribution, different levels. And it may just be social, may just be around a golf, may just be a day at the lake. Or around the Sunday dinner table. Sunday dinner table is the place to leave it. I've only got one thing on my mind in boxing, and that's to be the single most dominant promoter in the world. Some may say that's impossible. It's a bad thing to say to me. And new RBA These are special nights that boxing gives us that perhaps no other sport out there does give us. You couldn't make this stuff up. That was one of the best nights I've ever been a part of. I don't think I've wasted one second of my life. That'll do me.